It was late December in 1987 when a woman set off on a trip to go and visit relatives. When she came back just a few days later, her family had been completely destroyed. This is The Case Remains Podcast, episode 39. The unsolved murders of Philip, Kelly and Sherry Fager. Just after Christmas of 1987, Mary Fager drove from her home in Wichita, Kansas, to Emporia, another city about 90 miles away. She was off to see her parents, leaving her 37-year-old husband Philip behind to look after the couple's two daughters, 16-year-old Kelly and 9-year-old Sherry. The Fagers had been married for 11 years, and it was a second marriage for Mary, who is slightly older than Philip at 40 years old. Thanks to Philip's job as a financial analyst for Boeing, the Fagers led a comfortable life. The family lived together in a one-storey brick ranch with a two-car garage, and Philip took great pride in their home. At the time, they were having a sunroom built onto the rear of the house, and had just had a brand new hot tub installed. The Fagers had a camper van and would often travel together around the country, taking trips to Washington, California and Florida. Kelly, their oldest daughter, was a junior at Southeast High School and also had a part-time job at McDonald's, while Sherry was a third grader at Jefferson Elementary School. Though from the outside their lives looked perfect, The Fagers weren't without their problems. At one point, Mary had spoken to a lawyer about pursuing a divorce, stating that her husband had a bad temper and sometimes got mad enough to kill somebody. On the morning of New Year's Eve, a Thursday that year, Mary left her parents' house and made the 90-minute drive back to her family home. When she arrived... At first, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The front door had been locked and everything was in its rightful place. But when Mary stepped into the living room, she saw her husband, still wearing his coat, lying on his back on the floor. She called his name and when he didn't respond, she went and put her hand to his face. It was stone cold. Philip had been shot twice in the back, once at close range and the other at almost point-blank range. One of the bullets had pierced his heart and passed all the way through his chest. Mary immediately ran across the street to get help, and at first she wasn't too worried about her daughters. When she returned home, Mary noticed that the 1983 grey Volkswagen was gone, and she assumed that Kelly had taken Sherry out somewhere, as she had done many times before. It was only later, when Mary was sat at the police station waiting to be interviewed, that she found out both her daughters were dead. Police had discovered Kelly and Sherry's bodies floating in the family's hot tub, its hinged lid closed shut. Sherry's hands had been bound behind her back with electrical tape, the same tape that had been wrapped around her neck, almost strangling her. An autopsy would later show that she was still alive when she was put in the hot tub, with perhaps enough air in her lungs to take one final breath before she drowned. 
Kelly, who was found nude, had also been drowned in the hot tub. She had no marks on her body and, unlike her little sister, hadn't been bound. An autopsy later revealed that Kelly had been killed four to six hours after Sherry. Though there was no immediate answer as to who had committed this awful crime, there was something to suggest when it had occurred. Wednesday morning's newspaper had been brought inside, while Thursday still lay out on the front step. That placed the Faker's deaths at some time on the Wednesday, between 24 and 36 hours before their bodies were found. As far as motive, there was nothing that sprang to mind. Though the car was missing, the home showed no signs of forced entry and hadn't been ransacked. The Fagers, by all accounts, were just a regular family, with no enemies that anyone could think of. At their joint funeral service four days later, over 500 relatives, friends, neighbours and co-workers attended. The same day that Mary had returned home to Wichita, the police had received a call from a woman named Shelley Butterworth, who reported her husband missing. William, or Bill Butterworth, was an independent contractor and had been working on the new sunroom at the Fager home. He had been due to work there on the Wednesday and hadn't been seen since he left his house. Bill's van was then found parked seven blocks away from the Fager's home, right by the McDonald's where Kelly Fager worked, though she hadn't had a shift for over a week. While police believed it was in the realm of possibility that Bill was also a victim, they thought it much more likely that they had found their suspect, and it didn't take long to track him down. On January the 3rd, three days after the Fagers were found, Shelley Butterworth received a phone call from her husband. He was in tears, saying that he didn't know where he was or how he had got there. While she kept him on the phone, another relative called the police, and they were able to trace the call to a payphone in the parking lot of a motel. The motel was located in Stewart, Florida, over one and a half thousand miles away from Wichita. A police officer happened to be driving right past the motel and pulled into the parking lot. Bill was still on the phone talking to Shelley, and when the officer approached and began to arrest him, he said nothing and simply hung up the phone. In his pocket was a dollar forty-five, and the keys to the Fagers' 1983 grey Volkswagen Rabbit. Bill Butterworth was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and the felony theft of the car. The Volkswagen was found in the motel parking lot and impounded. It previously had a Boeing sticker and a Southeast High School sticker on it, both of which had been scraped off. Bill was also found to be missing some personal items, including a Wichita State University jacket, a pair of tennis shoes, his watch, his wallet and his wedding ring. Bill was interrogated for a total of five hours, during which time he told the police that he couldn't remember anything after he left home for work at 7am on Wednesday. According to him, his next memory was hearing a news broadcast on the radio reporting the Fager's murder. 
Bill was noted as being extremely upset while in custody, frequently crying while being questioned. He was so upset that jailers were asked to keep a special watch on him in case he tried to harm himself, and he was soon freed from custody on a $100,000 bond. Though his version of events was bizarre, Bill seemed an unlikely killer. He had no criminal record and was known as a friendly family man who rarely even lost his temper, father to a three-year-old daughter and six-month-old twin sons. He did, however, have his fair share of money problems and had been sued numerous times over the previous seven years. He had his own company, Sunshine Rooms of Wichita, and had got in trouble for not paying bills and for not registering his business. Court records showed that he had lost one lawsuit and was ordered to pay $6,000, but that the money couldn't be collected because he had nothing in his accounts. Still, that didn't have much bearing on the Fager murders. He didn't seem to have any motive to kill Philip, Kelly and Sherry, and if he was on the run from the law, he hadn't done a very good job of covering his tracks. With his insistence that he had no memory of the past four days, it was down to the police to try and put the pieces together. On the team was Lieutenant Ken Landwehr, who later played a key role in the capture of notorious serial killer Dennis Rader, otherwise known as BTK. And as it turned out, Dennis Rader had his own thoughts on the person who had killed the Fager family. Two days after Bill's arrest, Mary Fager received a letter addressed to her family home. The letter was from none other than the mysterious BTK, who by that time had killed a family and three women in Kansas. The letter showed a drawing of a naked adolescent girl tied up and sitting next to a pool, and described his admiration for whoever had killed the Fager family. Naturally, there was some speculation by the public that perhaps BTK was the one responsible, but the police dismissed any connection between the previous unsolved murders and the Fager killings. And so, Wichita investigators continued to work on the case, but with their prime suspect seemingly unable to remember a thing, they were getting nowhere fast. They hadn't located the murder weapon and couldn't find any witnesses to the crime. They couldn't even find any of Butterworth's fingerprints in the home, despite the fact he said he hadn't worn any gloves. A month after his arrest, and with still no memory of the days between December 30th and January 3rd, Bill requested to see a psychologist in the hopes that it would help him remember. His lawyer, County Public Defender Richard Ney, got Bill an appointment with Dr. Robert Pace, a clinical psychologist who specialised in hypnosis. Ney didn't tell Dr. Pace about the crime, and instead gave him just basic background information about the Fager family. Over the next four months, Bill attended 20 sessions with Dr. Pace and was hypnotised in 10 of them. None of the sessions were recorded or filmed. However, Dr. Pace made extensive notes for each one. It was only after the 17th session 
that Bill began to remember the events of the Fager murders. According to Bill, he had gone to the Fagers' house to work on their sunroom early in the afternoon on December 30th. However, after hearing what he thought were people in the hot tub, he'd decided to leave. He thought that maybe it was Kelly Fager and her boyfriend, and he'd been made to feel uncomfortable on a previous occasion when he went to their bathroom and had seen the young couple together in the Fagers' bedroom. To pass the time, he headed to a nearby mall, where he bought trousers, a shirt and a pair of shoes, before heading back to the Fager home a few hours later. According to Dr Pace's notes, Bill cried as he recalled how he had opened the sunroom door to see Sherry lying face up in the hot tub. He went to try and pull her out, but realised that she was dead. Despite also being found in the hot tub, he had no recollection of seeing Kelly. He said that next, he went into the house to get help and saw Philip lying dead on the floor. He knelt beside him and picked up some keys that were lying next to his body, which turned out to include the key to the car. He went to his van and tried to leave, but the keys wouldn't work. He started hitting the steering wheel and then realised that he was using Philip's keys instead of his own. He grabbed the bag of new clothes that he had in his van and drove away in the Fager's car. At this point in the hypnosis, Bill began to get extremely upset and said he felt afraid and cowardly for running away. Dr Pace ended the hypnosis and for the first and only time allowed Bill's wife Shelley to come in to comfort him. Dr Pace didn't hypnotise Bill again until the 20th and final session. This time, Bill said that he remembered hearing something when he picked up the keys next to Philip. He described it to Dr Pace first as a bumping sound and then like someone trying to cry or scream. He thought that the sound could have come from the basement. It was then that he fled out the front door and drove away in the Fager's car, saying that he wanted to go home, but he couldn't. Next, he remembered getting some money from an ATM, withdrawing $100, and driving past his own house, wanting to go in. Instead, he made the 24-hour drive to Florida. At that point, Bill was in tears again, and so Dr Pace ended the hypnosis. He asked Bill if he believed that Kelly was still alive in the basement when he left, and Bill replied that he did. He went on to say that if he had not been such a coward, Kelly may not have been killed. During the hypnosis, Bill had no recollection of scraping the stickers off the car, nor how or why he'd got rid of some of his personal belongings. In an admissibility hearing for the hypnosis evidence, Dr Pace testified that there was no way of knowing for sure if Bill was lying, but that he didn't believe Bill was faking it. This was in part due to some physical signs of being in a trance, like heavy breathing and the eyes rolling back. It was Dr Pace's opinion that Bill had reacted the way he had due to the trauma of what he had found, and that his response was similar to that of some of his trauma patients, 
such as Vietnam veterans and victims of incest. Ultimately, the evidence was allowed to be presented at the murder trial, which began in late May of 1988. Bill's attorney, Richard Ney, had also requested access to a number of documents to be used in evidence, including the letter Mary had received from BTK, along with other letters from people claiming to have information in the case. He also requested investigative reports from another 1987 homicide, where a teenager was murdered who, just like Kelly Vega, attended Wichita Southeast High School. Two of the people interviewed in that case had since moved to Stewart, Florida, the same town where Bill Butterworth had been found. The judge denied access to all of those documents. However, there was one request that he allowed. It was a letter from the State Department of Social and Rehabilitation Services that included an account of a statement Kelly made to school officials on December 6th. Kelly had reported being beaten by her father, though he was never charged with any crime. Over the 14-day trial, Bill took the stand to recount his version of events when he turned up at the Vegas home on December 30th, offering up the same story that he'd given to his psychologist under hypnosis. 17 witnesses were called to defend Bill's character, including co-workers, his wife's family and his parish priest, who testified that he found him to be an honourable, truthful and very peaceful man. Without any solid witnesses, DNA or a murder weapon, the prosecution were forced to build their case using only circumstantial evidence. Mailman Anthony Atkins testified that he'd heard a gunshot at the Fagers when he delivered the mail at about 12.30 in the afternoon on December 30th. He said he turned towards the house when he heard what sounded to him like a large-caliber pistol. Yet despite being questioned by the police the next day, he failed to mention ever hearing it. It wasn't until more than a month later that he told police what had happened. Bill's wife Shelley testified that she had found a gun in their home between October and November of the previous year. She asked Bill to get rid of it, which she assumed he had. She described it as an army-type gun, however, and Philip had been killed with a 38 caliber or similar handgun. With little else to work with, the prosecution tried to discount Bill's account of that day, arguing that he'd fled the scene not in fear, but in horror when he realised what he had done. In the end, after deliberating for five hours, the jury decided that there just wasn't enough evidence to show that Bill was the killer. He was found not guilty on the 7th of June just days before his twin son's first birthday. The jury foreman, Ron Blasey, revealed that at their initial vote, seven jurors immediately voted for acquittal, while three were undecided and two wanted to convict. But after they'd gone through the various points in the trial, they decided that there was just too much that didn't make sense. Speaking to the press, Blasey said, it's the state's responsibility to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and the evidence, the witnesses, weren't there. I mean to tell you, when you have that postman as a witness, 
I mean, that's desperation. He said that, for the most part, the jury had believed Bill's account that had been retrieved through hypnosis, and that the numerous character witnesses had played a big role in convincing them that Bill wasn't capable of committing this crime. They also believed that Bill was too intelligent to have killed the Fagers, and then to have driven their car to Florida without changing the license plates. Despite the fact that no one had been found guilty, police announced after the verdict that the case was closed. They had exhausted every lead they had, and had examined and eliminated numerous other suspects and theories. According to them, there was nothing to suggest that there was anyone else involved, and to this day, no other arrests have been made in the Fager murder case. Even though there was no physical evidence, many people were stunned by the verdict. The prosecution accused the jury of believing an absolute fabricated lie. Jury foreman Ron Blasey's cousin, who happened to have the same name, started receiving death threats over the phone. Blasey was so incensed by what the prosecution team had been saying that he published a pamphlet outlining his opinions and how the jury had reached their verdict. One of the people who asked for a copy was Bill Butterworth, who went to visit Ron and his wife in their home. In 1990, the states appealed the case, questioning whether Bill's hypnosis-assisted testimony should have been admitted into evidence at the trial. But in the end, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that, if proper safeguards are observed, hypnosis may be used to refresh the memory of an accused person in a criminal case. For Lieutenant Landwehr, the Fager murders is a case that haunted him until his death from kidney cancer in 2014. Speaking to the Wichita Eagle the year before he passed away, he said that the smell of warm water and chlorine had bothered him ever since. Lieutenant Landwehr still believed Bill Butterworth to be guilty. He lamented that he and other authorities had let Mary Fager down, saying, We let a killer get away by not picking the right jury or not proving our case. That's our mistake. For Bill's lawyer Richard Ney, however, his role in Bill's acquittal was an early highlight in his career and is even listed as a notable achievement on his website. Today he runs his own law firm and has consistently been named as one of the best criminal defence lawyers in Kansas. Speaking of his practice, Ney said, I can tell you story after story where I represented a client where if someone put a gun to my head, I would say yes, he's guilty. And yet, in the trial, it became apparent that was not the case. This is why we have juries. Do we want a system where we are taken into the street and shot? Or a system where we believe in the presumption of innocence? Thank you for listening to episode 39 of the Case Remains podcast. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us over on Twitter and Instagram with the handle Case Remains. And you can also visit our website, www.caseremains.com, where you'll find write-ups on missing persons cases and unsolved mysteries. Until next time, stay safe.